I'll exegete a single passage, and we pretty much sit on that passage. But for the next few weeks, we're telling the story of the life in a day, the life of Jesus on his last day before the crucifixion. And to do that, I need to move us around a little bit, but we're going to start in the Gospel of Mark. I want to read for us verses 12 through 17. Mark 14, 12 through 17. On the first day of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. So I was looking in the Gospel of Matthew this week, and I realized something I hadn't seen before. When the news of Jesus' birth was announced by the Magi in Jerusalem, this is Matthew chapter 2, the whole city was stirred. Verse 3 says, When King Herod heard this, that a king of the Jews had been born, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. The Greek word translated disturbed means literally to stir up. The city was stirred. That was when Jesus was born. Matthew 21, when Jesus entered Jerusalem on the day that we know as Palm Sunday in the triumphal entry, Matthew writes, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? That's Matthew 21.10. This time, though, Matthew uses a different word. This one means that the city was shaken. The same words used elsewhere of an earthquake. So when Jesus came the first time, Jerusalem was stirred. When he came the second time, and the last time, actually, Jerusalem was shaken. So, of course, I thought about titling the sermon, Shaken, Not Stirred. And if I had a Sean Connery voice, I would have tried it, but I just don't. And the truth is, Jerusalem was both shaken and stirred. I mean, the city was churning like the Niagara River a mile north of the falls. And Jesus stepped right into the turbulence, turbulence fully aware that it would carry him to his death. On Sunday, he entered the city through the Golden Gate, which is now closed on the eastern side near the temple, at the head of a great procession of Galilean festival goers. On Monday, he swept through the temple like a gale, driving people out, overturning tables, and refusing to let people back in. On Tuesday... He faced a barrage of questions from the Herodians, the legal authorities, the Pharisees, and the priestly caste. There was a great deal of hostility. What happened the next day is not so clear. Perhaps Jesus taught again in the temple, or perhaps he kept out of public view. We do know that he spent Wednesday night, as each of the previous three nights, at a home in Bethany. The disciples were, with one very notable exception, unaware that plans were already in motion to secretly hand Jesus over to the authorities. But Jesus knew what lay ahead, a cascade of injustice and violence. On Thursday, which was the first day of the festival, Jesus sent two of his apostles, Peter and John, we learn in Luke's gospel, into the city ahead of him 
They probably went in the morning with instructions to prepare the Passover feast. They would have to procure a lamb, probably from the temple, buy horseradish and other ingredients for the bitter herbs. They'd have to get chopped nuts, apples, and cinnamon for the paste that was used, along with a yeastless bread and wine. They'd also need a place to prepare the meal. And that was a problem. Jesus hadn't told them where he planned to eat the Passover meal. So they asked him, this is Luke 22, where do you want us to prepare it, they asked. As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. Say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. So here's the picture. Peter and John ask where Jesus wants them to prepare the Passover. But you notice Jesus didn't give them an address. I mean, he could have said, they didn't have street numbers like we do, but he could have said something like, there's a two-story house on the corner of Market Street and Straight Street. The streets had names, like our streets do. Or he could have told them, go to the upper city, pass the Agora, stop at that first house on the right. Instead, he got all cloak and dagger with them. Enter through the city gate, a man carrying water. That was very unusual. Men didn't usually carry water. A man carrying water will pass you. He's not going to speak to you, but follow him. Go right into the house that he enters, and the owner will meet you. And I want you to say this. Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? When you say that, he's going to show you a large upper room. That's where I want you to make the Passover meal. So why all the secrecy? Probably because Judas was standing nearby listening. Or if he wasn't, because Peter or John might let it slip. If Jesus had given them an address, you can be sure that before the evening was over, the house would have been surrounded by troops and he would have been arrested. But that would have been too soon. There were still important things that he had to say to his disciples. So Peter and John go into the city. Later, Jesus with the disciples, minus Peter and John, are on their way into the city, early evening. The disciples are behind Jesus, and they start to argue over status. First century Judaism was even more status conscious than 21st century America, and the apostles thought the time had come to stake their claim for a leadership position. Thomas was a leader of sorts. He'd been the de facto leader when Peter was absent. James had gone to Jesus, remember, requesting one of the top spots in the organization. Andrew may have felt it necessary to argue on his brother's behalf. And who knows, maybe even Judas had a case to make. He had, after all, been entrusted with the important role of treasurer. The disciples think that this little power struggle they're having is a secret. They don't know that Jesus knows what they're arguing about or even that they're arguing. But Jesus does know. He's probably shaking his head. As they enter the city, Judas becomes hyper-observant. He's looking for any clue to their destination, racking his brains, trying to figure out what house do we go to here so that he can get word to the chief priest without giving himself away. Jesus, now remember how Jesus had been on Sunday? So buoyant, so kingly, and frankly, intimidating. Jesus is now quiet. He seems to be preoccupied. Yesterday, he talked about being troubled. He seems pensive, disturbed, and his mood has begun to affect all the other disciples. As soon as they walk through the city, 
probably westward along what was known as the first wall and then turning south into the upper city, Judas is trying to guess their destination. In front of a nice two-story home, Jesus turns suddenly and they go up the outside staircase and into a large furnished room. I wouldn't be surprised if he waited for Judas to go ahead of him. The house belongs to people Judas hardly even knows. They have a young son named John Mark. The room smells of roast lamb and bitter herbs. They sit around three tables that are shaped like a U, each one in his assigned seat. John sits next to Jesus on his right. Judas is pleased to see that he has the other place of honor at Jesus' left. Peter, who's been busy all day with preparations, is troubled to find that he's way down the line, seated next to one of the are in one of the least important spots. He worries that his recent absence has hurt his standing among the twelve. He feels defensive. He feels the need to prove himself. Now, it was in this setting, the disciples having just argued about their relative status, Peter worrying that he's fallen in the standings, Judas thinking, I wish I'd known he was going to put me in the place of honor. I would have never gone to the chief priest, but it's not my fault. Jesus should have told me. It was in this setting that Jesus did something totally unexpected. As the meal progressed, and without explanation, he stood up, he walked to the side of the room, and he filled a basin of water. Then he took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around himself as if he were a slave, and came back to the table and kneeled down and started washing the disciples' feet one at a time, perhaps starting with John or Judas, who sat in the places of honor. Now, The disciples are totally shocked, dumbfounded. There were strict rules of etiquette, and a superior never, ever washed an inferior's feet. Washing feet was a job reserved for the lowest slaves. In fact, while the rabbis could give their students all kinds of menial tasks to do, really menial things, washing feet was considered too demeaning, even for a first-year disciple. But Jesus went around the tables quietly washing their feet, nobody saying a word. A little while ago, they were arguing about who in their group, excluding Jesus, of course, was the most important. And now he acts like the least important, acts like the lowliest slave and washes their feet. Some of them, at least, realize that what Jesus is doing is in response to their pride and their power-grabbing ways. But I'm not sure Peter did. When Jesus came at last to him, He is full of pride, hurt pride, angry pride, fierce pride. He asks, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And when Jesus answers in the affirmative, he says, you will never wash my feet. It ain't going to happen. I know right from wrong. You're my boss, my master. I don't know who the others think they are, but there's no way you're going to wash my feet. Jesus looks him in the eye and says softly, If I don't, you have no part in me. You have no share in my work. That got Peter's attention, and he quickly changes his mind. Jesus finishes. The room is so quiet, you could hear a pin drop. And he walks over to where his clothes lie, and he puts them back on. The disciples don't know what to do. They don't know where to look, what to think. Then Jesus comes back and says, Do you know what just happened? Do you understand what I've done for you? It's not about washing feet. It's about putting others first. What I've done for you, you must do for each other. 
We're not going to be one of those groups where everyone's always vying for power. We're going to be a totally different kind of group where everyone is striving to serve each other. Then Jesus sits back down and the meal starts again. But time is passing and Judas is getting antsy. He's been wondering what excuse he can make so that he can slip away to tell the chief priest where Jesus is. But you can't just get up at a Passover meal and say, oh, I forgot something, I need to go. Besides that, he's sure that Jesus has been watching him. He's seen him looking at him. And he doesn't dare raise suspicions. But then Jesus does something totally unexpected. He looks Judas right in the eye and says, what you're about to do, do it quickly. It was like he read Judas's mind, like he wants him to go. Judas gets up immediately and leaves, not wanting to question his good fortune. But you have to believe he's wondering about it as he rushes along Jerusalem's empty streets on his way to the high priest's palace. Does Jesus know? He must know. Does he know? What should I do? Is it too late to back out? Now, there's, in scholarly circles, there's disagreement about this. But it seems to me that after Judas left, that it was after Judas left, that Jesus took the bread, which was a dry, yeastless bread, matzah bread, and he blessed it and broke it. He broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Then he took the third of the four cups of wine used in the Passover, which was known as the cup of blessing. He lifted it up so that they could see the red gleam in the lamplight. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. All of you drink it. Now that Judas is gone, Jesus begins sharing from his heart the truths that he desperately wants his friends to know. While Judas was there, he couldn't say what he needed to say. But now Jesus begins talking, and it's as if the things he tells them are seared right into their hearts and minds. In the light of what's about to happen, he tells them that they must look out for each other. They must love each other. This is so important that he repeats it three times in a matter of minutes. Then he tells them that he'll soon be leaving them and that they can't come with him. They feel like they've just been kicked by a mule, feel sick to their stomachs. What does he mean that he's leaving us? What does he mean that we can't go with him? It's just too much for Peter. Peter says, I don't care where you go, Lord. I'll follow you. Even if it kills me, I'll follow you. Now remember that when Jesus said he would wash Peter's feet, Peter said, no, you won't. Now when Jesus says, you can't follow me, he says, yes, I will. I don't know about these other guys, but I'm going to follow you. That's when Jesus goes on to tell Peter that before the night's over, he will disown him three times. And Peter contradicts Jesus for the third time that night. He swears up and down, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. I will never disown you. The Greek tense suggests that he kept saying it. And while all this is going on, Jesus is keeping his eye on the clock, on the hourglass, if you will. He knows how long it will take for Judas to reach the Temple Mount, go to the high priest's residence, get an interview with the high priest or one of his staff. He knows how long it will take for the high priest to order Temple Guard to this location and how long it will take them to assemble a posse and make it to the upper city. Judas 
meanwhile, has left, remember? He's almost running. When he arrives at the high priest's palace, he's told to wait, and it seems like forever before the high priest's assistant comes out to see him. The temple guard is called out. Judas is ordered to lead them back to that house with the upper room. I wouldn't be surprised if the last thing the high priest's assistant said to him before he left was, this better not be a scam. So Judas hurries back to the house with the upper room. The temple guards surround the place. Then a squad ascends the stairs and breaks in to find it empty. Jesus and the others have gone. The captain of the guard walks menacingly up to Judas and demands that he explain himself. Now Judas is doing some fast talking and even faster thinking. He was here. I swear it. If it hadn't taken you so long to get a team assembled... If you hadn't kept me waiting so long, you could have had him. I mean, it's not my fault. To which the captain would say something like, I don't care whose fault it is, but if you don't tell me where he is right now, you're going to regret ever having met me. So Judas is thinking as hard as he can. Where would Jesus go? Maybe he says, be quiet. I'm trying to think. And then I've got it. It's the olive press just east of the city on the Mount of Olives. It's one of his favorite places. He's taken us there many times. The captain says, then we're going to need additional men. That area is too big for us to cover. They'll see us coming and slip away through the trees before we can ever reach them. So we better stop on our way to the gate and requisition more troops. While all this is going on, Jesus is walking. By the way, rabbis usually taught their disciples as they walked. Jesus is walking with his friends, talking to them, praying for them. The prayer in John 17 happens at this point. He's given them everything that he can, everything they can bear at this point. He knows they're going to forget it all and the chaos that's about to unfold, but he knows that the Spirit will bring it back to their minds. For now, the time of teaching is over, and it's time to pray. He needs to talk to his father before Judas and the others arrive. they enter Gethsemane, the olive press. That's what Gethsemane means. It's dark there among the low-hanging branches of the olive trees. Jesus finds a comfortable place and tells his disciples to wait for him there. Then he takes Peter, James, and John, and they go off another 30 or 40 yards, and he tells the three, you'd better pray. The time of testing is on you. And then he goes just a little way further, falls on his knees, and prays. He wants to be alone with his father. He wants his friends nearby. Usually when a first century Jewish man prayed, he stood with his eyes raised to heaven and his arms spread apart. Jesus often prayed that way. But this time he's on his knees. We think of prayer happening on your knees, but that was unusual. But here's Jesus on his knees. He finds this prospect of what's about to happen to him horrifying. And he knows there's still time to escape. Might there not be another way? His soul is stirred up. His thoughts are tumultuous. If he goes through with this, he will bear a weight that will break him. The weight of the sins of the nation and of the world. The prospect is overwhelming. He asks his father once, twice, Three times to find another way. He wants this as badly as you or I have ever wanted anything. Horror grips him. But he will not turn from his father. He will not look anywhere else for his security. For his life. 
Each time he prays, he says, yet not my will, Father, but your will be done. And after each round of prayer, he walks back over to where Peter, James, and John are waiting. They're dozing off, not from weariness alone, but from the mind-numbing events of the evening. The last time Jesus comes to them, he wakes them up. He says, get up. Looking through the trees, he sees lamps and torches steadily advancing toward him. This is it. He says to his father what he has said a thousand times before and will say yet once again the words of the ancient psalm. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And God's spirit rises within him. When Judas appears, Jesus is no longer agitated. He is no longer asking for escape. His father has answered his prayer. No. But he has strengthened his spirit. When Judas advances with the captain of the guard at his heels, it is now Jesus who's in control. Jesus speaks first. Jesus asks Judas and his friends what they want. Jesus tells them what to do. If you've come for me, Take me, leave my students alone. When the disciples first see Judas coming with a band of armed men, you know what they think? They think Judas is going to bring fighters to join them. So that's what Jesus meant when he said, what you do, do quickly. But now after hearing Jesus talk to Judas, it suddenly dawns on Peter and and the others what is happening. Judas? Judas, a traitor? They're going to arrest Jesus? Peter, like many of the men who came for Passover, is carrying a weapon, a short-bladed sword. He draws it, and he rushes at the guy he takes to be in charge. Earlier that night, he told Jesus he was willing to die for him. Now he proves it. But Jesus has no intention of letting Peter die in that garden. At the moment when life and death hang in the balance, Jesus takes charge. He orders Peter to sheath his weapon. He tends the injured man and heals him. Have you ever wondered what happened to that guy? His name, by the way, is Malchus. I, I suspect <clears throat> that this man, he was the servant, servant of the high priest. He knew him well. And he knew what a thoroughly arrogant and self-seeking man he was. But here was a very different kind of man with a very different kind of authority. I wonder how many people like him came over to join the followers of Jesus in the next few years. After Jesus ordered Peter and the others not to fight, they didn't know what to do. And so they fled. As they run off through the olive trees, the temple guard turns and leads Jesus away towards the city. The disciples have fled. The guard has marched off, and there's Judas alone. He thinks, I thought for sure Jesus would do something. Why didn't he do something? Before that moment, Judas was not only self-deceived, he was demonically deceived. But now that the deed is done and the devil's got from Judas what he wants, he leaves Judas to see the awful truth of what he's done. Judas turns in the direction of the temple guard and begins to walk, saying to himself, it's not my fault. 
If they'd have listened to me, none of this would have happened. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. Judas isn't the only one following the temple guard. Peter had run off like all the rest, but not far. He had hid among the olive trees until there was enough distance between him and the temple guard, and then he also followed. He still has his short-bladed sword concealed under his tunic. He said that he would never disown Jesus. Well, he wasn't going to now. It was altogether likely that he would die trying, but he was going to set Jesus free somehow. And so he follows Jesus all the way back into the city, into the very palace of the high priest, thinking all along, how am I going to do it? What's going to happen? He doesn't know, but he knows he's going to do something. Every few minutes he feels for his sword hilt. He knows he's going to need it. Poor Peter. When Jesus said, I'm going to wash your feet, he said, not on your life. When Jesus said, you're going to abandon me, he said, oh, those other guys might, Thomas and James, Nathaniel, Philip, but I never will. When Jesus said, you will disown me before this night's over, Peter said, no way, no way. I will die before I disown you. And just now when Jesus said, let the disciples go, Peter said, I don't want to go. I want to fight. Peter would do anything for Jesus up to and including dying for him. The only thing he wouldn't do is listen to him. And so Peter's going to learn the hard way. When we won't listen to Jesus, when we won't trust him and do what he says, then we have a big fall coming. So that's where we're going to leave the story until next week. Jesus is bound with ropes and being led to the palace of the high priest. He's bound and led, but for all intents and purposes, it looks like he's in charge. The high priest chief of staff, Malchus, he's in shock. When the enemy tried to kill him, indeed was within an inch of death, Jesus, the one the high priest said was an evil blasphemer, blasphemer and the enemy of all things holy, Jesus protected him and then healed him. Would the high priest have stood up for him like that? To ask that question was to answer it. Of course he wouldn't, but Jesus did. He's staggered by what's just happened. The disciples are scattered this way and that. They're scared to death, sure that the temple police are coming after them. They think they're being hunted down like animals. Then there's Peter, warily following like a beast on the prowl. His pride is hurt, but he is determined to prove himself, and he's going to prove himself but in ways he never imagined before this night is over. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to enter into this story, to see ourselves in Peter and in the others. Even more, Lord, help us to see you. You stand exalted. And our hearts are humbled.
open our eyes to see you. And then, open our mouths to speak your praise. Amen.